Good morning. Uh, it's a joy to be with you all this morning, to be able to celebrate and sing praises to our Savior as we come together, as we come into his presence with joyful song and lifting high and reminding ourselves of these things, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is enthroned, he has been since the beginning of time, and yet that great God delivered his son up for us once and for all as the atonement for our sins that we've just sang about. And so, wonderful reminder this morning. As we transition this morning into our time in the Word, we're going to return to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. As you turn there, I have a question for you. How much faith do you have? How do you even go about quantifying an answer to that, right? But how much faith do you have? So look at the text this morning. Jesus says of these disciples and marvels at the littleness of their faith. So there is a sense in which our faith can and should be measured. How can you know how much faith you have? If you're sitting there and you're wondering, well, how, how do I know how much faith I have? How are you going to go about measuring it? What do you do to measure it? We know that testing and trials are one of the chief ways in which faith is perfected according to James. Maybe an appropriate question to ask, is it possible to even know how much faith I have without testing and persecution in this life and difficulties in this life? Well, read along with me this morning as we look at the disciples and the example Jesus provides of their faith, their need for their faith to grow, and as he teaches them more about himself Matthew 8, 23 through 27. You may remember that Jesus had intended to embark to the other side of the sea to leave the crowds. He was interrupted by two persons who came to him asking questions, one a disciple and one a scribe. Having addressed their questions, verse 23 says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so the boat was covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Pray with me as we begin our study this morning. Father, as we look at this text, the text is familiar to many of us. Father, even to those who are outside the church, whether it be paintings or stories of this calming of the seas. Father, help us to look at the message that you have from these words, what you desire to instruct your disciples and how that instruction applies to our lives. Father, help us to evaluate our faith. Father, may our faith grow, may it mature, may it be salt and light in this world. In your name, amen. Well, last week we learned that Jesus prepared to leave the crowds in Capernaum and head across the sea on what would have been, as we described, about a four to six hour boat trip 
if nothing were to happen along the way. So we've already read something does happen. Matthew notes that Jesus' desire to leave the crowds, or he has this desire to leave the crowds, and he, and he notes the reason for this. And the way he tells us what the reason for leaving the crowds was is by highlighting these two persons, the scribe and this disciple who came to Jesus with these questions. Their questions demonstrated as a whole the attitude of the crowds, namely that they weren't there for discipleship. They weren't there to increase their faith. They weren't there to increase their worship of the Savior. They were there to be entertained. They were there for their own peace, their own safety, their own security, their own reasons. The people were coming, they were coming with their own selfish motivations or divided commitments, desiring to have the benefits of Jesus without the wholehearted devotion that is required of a disciple. Growing weary of this, realizing the growing crowds and the growing misunderstanding of the crowds, Jesus sets to have a brief interlude by crossing the sea. Remember, Capernaum's on the northern side of the sea. They're going to sail all the way to the south, to the land of Gadara. We'll look at that next week, but again, this would have been quite a distance by boat across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, having been interrupted with the initial preparation to leave, continues with his plans to get into the boat, and he does that. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 4 that it was evening when they departed on the boat. Now, that doesn't mean it was dark, but certainly the sun was getting low in the horizon as evening was upon them. I think it's interesting to note in the kind of the theme of discipleship and learning from Jesus, having seen what half-hearted discipleship looks like, in just a real quick, simple picture, you see Jesus got into the boat and the disciples did what? They followed him. Here you see just a real simple picture of discipleship. Though we'll see the shaking faith of the disciples in the midst of the storm later, we here see them exhibiting the reality of their discipleship. They followed Jesus. They didn't waver as did the scribe. They didn't ask for a leave of absence as the previous disciple. They simply followed him. Mark 4 tells us that there were actually a few other boats with Jesus that day as they set sail. And that aligns well with what we've discussed, specifically when we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, when we talk about the disciples of Jesus, because the disciples of Jesus accompany more than just the 12. Often when we think the disciples of Jesus, we think about those 12 disciples, that inner circle, if you will. And yet, we know at times we see descriptions of 70 disciples and other numbers of disciples. And so here as, these, as they get ready to embark here, a number of these disciples, more than 12, probably less than 50, get into these boats. These weren't large boats. The standard vessel would have been able to hold 12 to 15 persons. That includes the four rowers and the helmsman who's going to direct the boat. So even with three, four, five boats, you wouldn't have had more than 40 to 50 persons. And you can imagine those disciples, that inner circle, many of those who made up or would later make up the 12, as not all of them had been called yet, are likely the ones who clambered right behind Jesus, that were already closest to him and climb into the boat with him. Pulling away from the crowd and entering the boats with his disciples is going to provide here an opportunity for further disciple training. Training that's going to highlight the extent of Jesus' authority and his power while simultaneously demonstrating the littleness of the disciples' faith. 
You can imagine, in light of the two interactions that the disciples had just observed, they'd observed the scribe come to Jesus, they'd observed this other disciple, perhaps it's one who faithfully responded, but initially had this half-hearted devotion, or expressed this half-hearted devotion. They've just observed this as they were getting ready to get on the boats. You can imagine them thinking, well, hey, I'm not half-hearted. I'm not wavering in my commitment. I'm not here for the show. And so you can imagine they, they may be thinking, we have greater faith. We're the disciples. We're the ones following Jesus. We're not like these crowds. And so just as Jesus had gone up onto the mount a few chapters earlier to teach his disciples, so here Jesus heads out into the Sea of Galilee, drawing with him primarily his disciples to instruct and teach them. Matthew doesn't say how long after pushing off from land the storm descended upon them, but we can imagine they were some distance from shore when this happened. Since experienced sailors and fishermen, which many of the disciples were, whom Jesus had called, would not have set sail if a storm was imminent. If they saw storm clouds rolling in, they would have held off. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It's ringed by mountains to the east, and these mountains act like a wind tunnel. So that as winds come from the east and sweep down, it funnels those winds down onto the Sea of Galilee, which is really a large freshwater lake. And it creates these very quickly arising and turbulent windstorms on the lake, resulting in waves that can rise quickly, several meters high. A storm of this type matches what Matthew describes when the boat being covered with waves. Water was filling the boat faster than they can empty it. You can picture the franticness of the disciples as they're using anything they have to bail out the water, throwing overboard anything else they have. Picture Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah, right? The sailors are throwing overboard everything they can to lighten the boat as it begins to fill with water, as it gets near capsizing. Here are much smaller boats, more easily tossed about in the wind and the waves as they rock about, the waves just throwing it left, right, feeling like you're about to fall over one moment. For those that weren't experienced fishermen, they may have been losing lunch and dinner over the side as they do everything they can to hold on for dear life. But what do we find in the midst of the storm with the winds howling, the boat rocking and rolling, filling with water? Where is Jesus? Matthew says he is asleep. Mark says he had found a pillow and had gone probably to the, toward the front of the boat and had been able to fall, fall down and fall asleep. It's sound sleep. And it's in this sleep that we begin to note the great authority of Jesus. Well, now, how does that happen? How in his sleep do we see authority of Christ? Well, Jesus is able to rest in peace in the midst of this storm because, for the very reason, that he has absolute authority over the waves in the sea. They're of no concern to him. There's no reason for him to be disturbed, so he sleeps unaffected by the storm. It's just a simple little noise machine to him. Interestingly, in the ancient Near East, sleep, especially peaceful and undisturbed sleep, was a sign of divine authority. As one commentator notes, sleeping is a symbol of divine rule in the ancient Near Eastern literature, and here is a sign of divine sovereignty. 
But it's more than just that. It's more than just highlighting his sovereignty, his authority, and divinity, which is absolutely being done. Because his sleep also provides a contrast to the response of the disciples, doesn't it? You really could not portray two more contrasting responses to the storm. And it's an opportunity for instruction. As Chrysostom notes, he sleeps to give occasion for their timidity, to make their perception of what was happening more distinct. He creates the storm that by their deliverance they might attain a clearer perception of the benefit. And what was the benefit? Well, certainly you might say the saving of their lives, but it was more than that. The benefit was that they would learn the littleness of their own faith and the authority of the Savior. Verse 25, it was not the terrible storm and the crashing waves or the boat filling with water or the sinking of the ship which awoke Jesus. What was it? It says, disciples, shaking him away, crying out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, I've got to ask, think about how much the waves were throwing the boat around, how loud the howling wind was, the rain pelting down, Water being dumped into the boat. None of that woke up Jesus. So how hard did these disciples yell in his ear and shake him to get him awake? I mean, they had to violently shake him. I imagine it was probably Peter who did it the hardest. He's always up front and center doing that type of thing. Interestingly, it's Peter who probably learns this whole lesson in this text better than any of them. Because in another storm much later, in Jesus' ministry, Peter is willing to step out of a boat in the midst of the storm and walk toward Jesus on the water. That's for a later time. And keep in mind that these disciples, many of them were fishermen. These were experienced sailors and seamen. Their fear and terror highlights the greatness of this particular storm. This was no ordinary storm. And it's the utter desperation they felt as they shook him awake to wake him up. All of this, Jesus has orchestrated in order to demonstrate and teach and fulfill what the psalmist imparts in Psalm 107. In fact, turn with me to Psalm 107. We won't read the whole thing. As it's, a, it's a wonderful psalm. It's a long psalm, though. But go down to verse 23. Read along with me through... Verse 32, as we see, those who go down to the sea and ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man, and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Throughout history, God has used his power and his authority over creation, the sea specifically, to teach and to rebuke, to instruct, to increase the faith of his servants. I mean, beginning from, from the beginning, as we read this morning in Psalm 29, the great flood, 
So what happens? In verse 26, the beginning, Jesus awakens to the cries and the shaking of his disciples, and he looks at them with surprise. And in surprise, he asks, why are you afraid? It's almost as if he doesn't even realize a storm is surrounding them. He certainly doesn't even acknowledge it. He makes light of it. He goes on to say, you men of little faith. Now, why does he say this? Why does, of all the things he could have said, why is it you men of little faith? What was it about their fear in the storm that highlighted the littleness of their faith? Well, at that moment, Jesus accurately perceived that the disciples had lost faith in the promises of God. What do I mean? Well, just a few hours earlier, Jesus had said, we are going to the other side of the lake. At this moment, the disciples doubted the truthfulness of those, these words. They thought that instead of going to the other side of the lake, they were headed to the bottom of the lake. They stopped believing. Instead, they believed that they would all perish. Jesus included, which again, means that, they show, that this shows a limited faith in who Jesus himself was. If they thought Jesus himself could perish. Storms were used by the ancient Greeks to test the beliefs of their philosophers. They would praise philosophers who demonstrated consistency with their teaching by maintaining a serene attitude during a storm. At this point, the disciples failed this test of consistency. They lost all faith and in their own strength, all their faith in their own strength and all, strength, all faith in their own ability. They seem to have even forgotten who it was with, that was with them. And yet, the disciples' faith was still there. There was some. And it was strong enough to turn to the right place. Their faith was little, it was weak, but it was strong enough to know that the place to turn was Jesus when they said, save us. Now pause and consider this. Does your response to situations in this life demonstrate consistency with what you say you believe? When you don't see income or you lose your job, will persons know you trust God by your answer, by your response, by your demeanor? And I'm not talking about being unaffected or stoic in the face of difficulties. There are plenty of ungodly persons who can demonstrate stoicism. It was a virtue of the Greeks, the ungodly pagan Greeks, to be stoic. Or who demonstrate confidence in their own abilities, but never turning to the Lord. So we're not talking about being unaffected. But rather, do you demonstrate your faith in God, the greatness or the littleness of your faith, by where you turn for help? By, in fact, admitting your weaknesses? You see, admitting weakness and inability is actually quite necessary for faith to grow. It's when we admit our weaknesses that we then have the opportunity to demonstrate our trust in God. If we never admit our weakness, if we never admit struggles, then we are either explicitly or implicitly saying we do not need God. And so the response isn't to pretend nothing is happening. That's not the point. The point is, acknowledge what is happening. 
and say, as bad as all this looks, I know I can trust the Lord. I, I know that there's joy here. There's things I can give him thanks for. I have a friend who goes through a fair amount of pain, and I love texting with him. Because even when he's having hard days, he can always tell me, unprompted, what he is thankful for. God brings events into our lives in order to show how great he is, not to show how great you are and how well you can withstand, how unaffected you are by the things in this world. And he does that to show the greatness of who he is. Jesus didn't bring this storm to the disciples to show how great they were. He brought this storm, he created this storm to show how great he is. And so again, it's not about us. It's not about our ability to withstand anything. It's not about our ability to grin and bear it. Because when we do that, we're just as self-centered as an unbeliever. When sickness comes, do you show fear or faith? When John Piper was diagnosed with prostate cancer several years ago, he wrote a short exhortation on the eve of his surgery entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer in which he exhorted those around him to see suffering, sickness, death, or deliverance all as a means of glorifying God. In other words, he didn't even want to make the cancer about himself. So the follow-up question to this is, how do I do that? How do I make sure that I'm demonstrating this type of faith? How do I cultivate this type of faith? Well, we'll answer this more fully in a few minutes, but for now, just note that the disciples recognize that their only hope was in Christ. And this is the basis. This is the starting place for all faith, and it must be the starting place for every true disciple of Jesus Christ. Knowledge that whether it be salvation from sin or deliverance from or through anything in this life only comes from Christ. It's always been God's character to be with his people, to carry them through. Turn with me to Isaiah 43. There in verse 1, speaking to Israel. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight." Since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. Keep going to the left, to Psalm 23, a well-known psalm. Again, marking and noting the character of God towards his people, particularly in the midst of difficulties. Very well-known psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. 
says David, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's important to note in these passages about God's character and how he cares for us is that in neither of those two passages did he deliver the people from the situation He carried them through the situation. This is an important truth. We will not, there is no guarantee that we will be delivered out of most trials and difficulties in this life. It will happen sometimes, but there is no guarantee, no assurance that we will be delivered out of every trial and difficulty. Instead, God delivers us through them and that we must suffer them. Well, why would he do this? It's for the same reason that he took these disciples into the storm, though in this instance, to show his great power and authority, he does deliver them from it. But it's to teach us and give us an opportunity to grow and increase our faith and our trust because we do make it through. Think about Peter, who was one of the disciples, crying out in fear. As we already noted, his faith did grow through this situation, so that the next time they were in a storm, he steps out in a boat to walk on water. But his faith was not yet perfected, because what happens a few moments later? He starts to sink. And Jesus has to grab him and pick him up. But think about how much his faith had grown from the previous instance to where now he's, instead of fearing for his life, he's stepping out of a boat. Jesus expects our faith to grow and strengthen. He takes us through situations in life in order to do that, but he does not ignore us or wait until our faith is perfected. He condescends to us. And so that's why he rebukes the disciples for their littleness of faith. He simultaneously answers their prayer for deliverance, even with their imperfect faith. And this should be great hope and encouragement for us because we all know our faith could be stronger, should be stronger, isn't that right? And though Jesus desires us to grow, he does not ignore us until our faith is somehow perfect in this life. Sometimes the answer may be to struggle on. At other times, it may result in deliverance. But Jesus always answers, whether it's to bring comfort to carry us through or deliver us out of. Here in this instance, as we've noted, Jesus desires to demonstrate his power and authority and to teach a valuable lesson to his disciples and to us. So we see in the second half of verse 26 that Jesus arose and rebuked the winds and sea and they became perfectly calm. That small statement, he arose, is itself hugely significant. That is the action of a divine ruler or of a king standing to take action. It emphasizes the authority of Christ who, through what he does, it demonstrates that he was king and ruler about to show his authority. In Isaiah 33.10 The Lord says, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. Psalm 9, verse 19. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. 
Psalm 10, 12, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Psalm 12, 5, Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Psalm 82, 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. So Jesus rises and acts in accord with his divine authority and his kingship. The one who healed and cast out demons by means of a word now rebukes the wind and the seas and they obey him in a word. So that a great calm replaces the great storm. The creation responds to the one who alone possesses authority over it, its creator. And what was the response to this word? Instant obedience. The winds and the seas instantly obeyed became perfectly calm. Sea was like glass, from roaring waves to calm as glass in an instant. Not slowing of waves, not a last little ripple, perfect calm. It's impossible. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. By the laws of nature, it is impossible. Because even the kinetic motion and energy of the waves would have resulted in them continuing and slowly dissipating. So the text says perfectly calm. I look at something like that and I'm actually convicted. You may say, how am I convicted by the winds and the waves? It's because they obeyed him instantly. To obey so completely, so thoroughly, when we're rebuked by God's word for disobedience, when we're shown our sin, I really wish I obeyed as well as the wind and the seas. In this response of creation, we're humbled. We are the pinnacle of creation. We are created in the image of God to rule and have dominion over all of creation, yet it's us who are hard-hearted, slow to respond, and slow to obey. We're the slowest of all of his creation to obey. This response of creation should serve not only as a rebuke to us, though, but it's also an example to follow, that we should respond and submit to God's word and to his authority with such instantaneous obedience. Now, I want to acknowledge something. When we encounter a story like this, especially this part, where the wind and the seas instantly calm, we have to fight against our temptation to brush away the miraculous. Because we don't experience miracles like this every day. Especially in our Western culture, we, I think, struggle even harder with this. I think most of us would assent to this happening, but do we really believe Jesus spoke and this great storm stopped instantly? One of the great dangers that comes from reacting to the excesses or the abuse around healing and miracles by many in the church is to develop a denial of miracles and a downplaying of the power of God over creation, over sickness, and over disease. It's especially true among those of us who might except, however cautiously, the label of a cessationist with regard to healing and charismatic gifts. But the problem is that what happens is a lot of so-called cessationists develop a perspective that says, we know he could do that, but since the gift of miracles is not continued today, then miracles don't exist today. In essence, becoming anti-miraculous. However, that is false and theologically irresponsible. 
Miracles existed long before and apart from the gift of miracles and healing in the early New Testament church. And I fully believe that miracles still happen today. God has not stopped interacting and engaging with his creation. One missionary I know who passed away a few years ago ministered for a long while in Africa. He would tell stories of watching the Lord answer prayers, stop rainstorms on the edge of fields so that the gospel could be proclaimed. They would finish their sermon, they would pack up the equipment they had brought with them, put it in the Jeep. As soon as they cover it with a tarp, the rainstorm rolls across the field. There's no other answer other than that the Lord provided a miracle, that the Lord stopped the rain. I know of persons who have spoken or were heard in languages they didn't know or study in a moment of need when ministering the gospel. They couldn't replicate it on their own later. In other words, it, wasn't, it was miraculous, but it was distinct from a repeatable gift of tongues. But in our response against abuses and those who make light of the miracles, we must be careful not to fall into an equally dangerous, and theolo dangerous theological position of denying the miraculous working of God and his engagement in the lives of his creation and his involvement in the affairs of men today. We want to be careful not to implicitly deny the authority of God over nature and creation by denying that he still works and is active today and even answers prayers in miraculous ways today. You see, the denial of the miraculous is just as dangerous as the abuse of charismatic gifts in presenting a wrong view of God, stunting our faith and hurting our spiritual growth. The important thing, though, is to remember, and this is the mediating factor, this is what helps bring balance is what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, where God hides the end from the beginning so that man will not know. So we pray, we do not command. God keeps us from knowing the outcome, at least having certainty of the outcome, so that we will continually lean on him so that our faith might grow. Verse 27 contains perhaps one of those ironic statements in this entire story. Here at the beginning. Look at what it says there at the beginning of verse 27. The men were amazed. Now, what makes that so ironic? Well, didn't they just ask Jesus to save them? Why are they surprised? They just asked Jesus to save them. He saves them, and they're shocked. The amazement of these disciples illustrates yet again the littleness of their faith. They didn't expect him to answer it as thoroughly as he answered their prayer. They cried out to be saved, but they didn't expect such a quick, such a sure answer to their prayer. They were caught off guard by the display of God's authority over his creation. And in fact, I think most, if not all of us, would be just as surprised as these disciples. Because while we assent to God being in control, God is creator, God is Lord over all, we get shocked and amazed when he actually does and does display his authority. We should certainly respond in thankfulness, and I have no doubt that the disciples did, but what is noted by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all recorded this story, is the amazement and the shock of the disciples. Now, before we go any further or draw any final conclusions from this, I want to note a word here at the end of the story, or draw attention to a figure of speech, I should say, a figure of language, and that's a form of 
language called allegory. An allegory is a figure of speech intended to have persons in a story or illustration symbolize or represent persons or events. Compared to a metaphor, which makes an implicit comparison between two unrelated things, an allegory is said to have a, a deeper meaning as it symbolizes something else. Metaphor uses imagery, whereas allegory uses symbolism. Now, why am I giving you a brief lesson on figurative language? It's because this passage, this whole section that we've just read and looked at, has been the subject to much abuse by allegorization. And I'll give you some examples of exactly how and what that looks like. But I also want to be careful here because there is nothing wrong with allegory. Absolutely nothing wrong with allegory in and of itself. It's a perfectly valid means of communication. Scripture itself employs allegory at times, but as a hermeneutical or an interpretational method, it must be cautiously recognized, carefully applied. Because unless scripture explicitly demands it, we do not utilize allegory to ascertain meaning. Otherwise, we miss the plain truth right in front of us. So here's what that means. It, Contrary to how some have taught this passage, we do not look at the physical storm of the sea as a symbol for the storms of life. The disciples in their fear are not a symbol for every Christian in difficulty. Jesus' miraculous quieting of the storm does not become a promise that God will deliver us from every storm of life. We do not find the boat in which the disciples and Jesus are located as a symbol for the church. The question of the disciples are not the doubts and fears of Christians in this life. And the problem with that type of allegory and those who would teach those type of things is that it creates a temporal expectation and fulfillment of deliverance, that I will always be delivered just like these disciples were delivered. It promises deliverance from, deliverance from any difficulty one might face. What makes this so attractive is that Christians do experience trials and difficulties in this life. And so to think that there might be a way of guaranteeing deliverance from difficult situations sounds really appealing at first. The problem is, as we've already discussed this morning, often God does not remove us from such situations, but instead promises to be with us as we pass through them. What Matthew presents through this story is right in front of us and does not require us looking for a deeper meaning hidden beneath the waves. And so be careful as you read this text, as you may even hear others talk about this text and try to symbolize every aspect of it. There is much to be learned here, but it's not hidden, it's not esoteric. Verse 27, the disciples marvel. They're amazed that even the winds and the seas obey Christ. Prior to this moment, they did not realize the full extent of his authority and power. They had witnessed miracles in Capernaum with regard to healing, but now Jesus demonstrated his authority over all creation. We talked about his ministry that was summarized in Matthew 4 as he was going about teaching and working miracles. Sermon on the Mount provided the example of the teaching. Now we're into the working of miracles, the healing of sickness and diseases of every kind. And he's been doing that in Capernaum, and he'll continue to do that. But now we see, begin to see the full extent of that authority in his miracle working, that it's over all creation. There is no aspect of creation outside of his control. And as we'll see next week, it moves from the physical body to all of creation to the spiritual. 
When Matthew notes that the disciples said, even the winds and the seas obey him, he was highlighting the recognition that hit the disciples at that moment. And it terrified them. Notice something very important here. Throughout this entire story, the disciples, from the time that the storm rolled in, the disciples were afraid and terrified. And even through the end of the story, they continue to be terrified. First it was of the storm, and now it's of the Savior. Fear is an interesting and multifaceted concept. It's not relegated only to terror, but it encompasses worship. It encompasses amazement. There's times you worship because you fear. In this life, in this life, you will always be motivated by what you fear. It may seem like too blanket of a statement, but think about it for a moment. You will always be motivated by what you fear. If a person, we say that they worship wealth, or they desire wealth, what it really highlights is their fear of poverty. A person who craves power fears being powerless. A person who is constantly seeking the center of attention fears anonymity. And so the reality that we will always fear in this life leads us to ask the question, or really to ascertain, what is it that I fear? What is the right thing to fear? And it's good and right to fear God. Solomon tells us throughout Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For the disciples, this moment of growth in their faith resulted from the change in their fear, fear of the elements, to a fear of the Son of Man, as Jesus had described himself earlier that evening. One church father noted his sleeping showed he was a man, his calming of the seas declared him God. And the reality of who was in the boat with the disciples hit them full on, and they were afraid. Matthew uses the word amazed. Mark says terrified. Luke says they were both amazed and terrified. And they were right to be afraid because they were in the presence of immense greatness and power. But it's what do they do with that fear and what does that fear represent? You see, they knew more about God than just the judging and the fear and the sheer terror. But it was good for them to be afraid. Too often we present a tame version of God. Our God is not a tame God who has to fit our conception of how we, he should act. God acts according to his nature and who he is. Our thinking has to conform to what God has declared about himself, not what we think he should look like. And while this story, this storm, excuse me, is not an analogy for the storms of life, but still the overall situation reminds us that life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is filled with difficulties. That is a reality. That's why it's so easy to jump to that symbolism. Doesn't mean there's not a comparison. And the life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is filled with difficulties. We're promised that. We're guaranteed that. And while we're not promised any guarantee regarding the outcome of these difficulties, whether we have to go through them or we'll be delivered from them, they are given to increase our faith. Just like the disciples were carried through. That is, 
in accord with God's character. He brings us these difficulties to grow our faith. James tells us that, right? Beginning of James 1. He tells us to consider all joy whenever we encounter trials of various kind, knowing that the testing of our faith develops perseverance, that we may be perfect and complete. We need to continually work on reorienting our fear and our trust from the situation to God himself. And when we do that, our faith grows and it strengthens. So how do you do that? How do you develop trust in God and his sovereignty? Well, one, yes, it comes through the situations we go through, but we need to prepare ourselves for the situations. We must study to know Christ, that we might know him before the storms of life so that we can then bring to bear all the things we know about him in the midst of the storm. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our response should be, he is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, we will not stop trusting him. But this type of faith and trust only comes with the knowledge of the one who you trust. You know, it's estimated it takes around 200 hours of interaction with a person to become a good friend. If you were to spend 15 minutes a day, five days a week in study or prayer, it would take you over three years to reach this point. I think for many persons, even that level of consistency is missing. Is it really any wonder that our faith is so little? Here's the counterintuitive reality of this story. Jesus cared so much for these disciples that he tossed them with a tempest that they would recognize the littleness of their faith and the greatness and the authority of Christ and learn to fear him. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. May we study and steady our resolve so that we would respond with gratefulness when trials come our way and the littleness of our faith is exposed in order that we might respond rightly, that we would work on increasing our faith through how we respond, all so that we might reflect the greatness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as easy as it is in the midst of the difficulty to think it's all about me, it's all about him. That's why this storm came upon these disciples, was to show his goodness, his greatness, his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lessons that were learned in the boat with those disciples that day. Father, as we desire to be faithful disciples, I pray that you would help us to think rightly about you, that we would develop an a accurate fear of you, a fear that keeps us from sin, recognizing your hatred of sin, a fear that would cause us to want to obey because of the greatness of your love that's lavished upon us. So we're reminded of your mercy. May we study to know you more intimately, more closely, more carefully, that you would become our greatest friend. Father, help us to encourage one another, to come alongside one another, to to help one another to recognize where we do need to grow in our faith. Help us to give thanks in all things, to consider it joy, 
when trials, difficulties in this life come, knowing that they will, that we're either headed into in the midst or just coming out of trials and difficulties. We thank you that you are constant and consistent, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what comes, what difficulties arise, that you are still Lord over all. That everything you do in our life is for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us to remember that, to respond accordingly, and to be salt and light, shining forth your goodness as we trust in you. In your name, amen.